Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 196, airing in early May 2021. This is going to be an all-mailbag episode, taking listener questions. Some people sent in via Instagram, some through email, even an audio question. Now that Sarah has her really cool setup, (laughs) maybe you can just quickly remind listeners how they can send those. Yes, I embarked upon for my other podcast initially, but then realized, of course, it can serve both purposes. So, although we're not playing the recording right now, I guess. (laughs) No, we will. We're going to splice it in. You guys are going to get to hear it. Of course. So, we'll be airing the actual audio question. And if you'd like to submit an audio question, just click on the speak icon. I'll see if I can send it to Laura for her to embed into her show notes. But I will just to hedge our bets. I will remember on Tuesday to also include it on my blog. So as this airs, you can go to my blog post on theshoebox.com and there'll be a reminder of how to submit an audio question. You just click on the speak pipe icon and you can use whatever on your phone or your computer, whatever recorder. The questions are limited to 90 seconds because I don't currently have the pro version, but pro tip, 
You could always extend your question by leaving a second question if it really is longer than 90 seconds. <laughs> and honestly, okay. most questions don't take longer than no, 90 seconds no. to ask anyway is what I've learned. So they may want to think about changing their business model, but until then, it's a great way yeah. for you to put it at 15 seconds and then you have to pay <laughs> then you'll, you'll exactly. get a few more a little bit more exactly. revenue but yes we would we would welcome more i think it's really fun to actually hear voices all right well then we could go ahead and play that question then if you are set up to do that let's let's go for it hello sarah hi laura my name is shweta and i've been listening to the best of both worlds since 2018 and i find it very enjoyable and insightful so thank you for the great content One strategy that you've discussed in the past is to plan the next week and not just for work goals, but also for personal goals. I've always done weekly planning of my work goals, but a few weeks ago, I started planning my personal goals as well on my Friday afternoon planning sessions. And while I do a great job in planning and completing my work-related goals, my personal goals seem to have a scope problem. They're either overly ambitious, like creating a capsule wardrobe in a week, and I don't finish them, or extremely mundane, and they feel like a to-do list, like you know, changing out the bulb in the porch light. And it doesn't feel fulfilling then. So I end up feeling frustrated at the end of the week instead of being satisfied. So my question is, how do I set the right scope for my personal goals so that it feels like an accomplishment and not like a burden and not like box checking? Any advice for setting the size of these weekly personal goals would be great. Thank you very much. All right. So that question was about setting the right level of goals for our weekly goals. Laura, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is obviously the challenge of estimating how much we can get done, taking into account what life is like. And what I will say is this is very difficult. It's a time estimation question in addition to a, a goal estimation question. And time estimation is difficult. Many people do not know how long things they do quite regularly take. I mean, we're even talking things like commuting to work. There are people who don't actually know how long it takes them to get to work. I That seems a little silly. But there are plenty of other things that people do all the time and don't know how long they take. And it, it's, it's the same thing with setting goals for the like, what, what constitutes a challenging but doable sort of week. I would say aim low. And the reason is because if you set lower goals and you get through all of it, like you are always free to go pick more stuff. Like there is no rule saying, well, okay, if you accomplish everything by the end of Wednesday, you have to take the weekend off. I mean, you could, of course, but you're obviously welcome to go find some other stuff then to fill the rest of your week if you feel it was an inadequate week in some way, shape or form. But the more common sin is the other way that people try to cram too much in And then they don't get to it all. And then they feel discouraged. And it's not just about the discouragement part of it. It's that you might not have chosen the right stuff to do first if you don't really think through what you're going to get through. You may have chosen stuff that could have been done next week. You might have chosen stuff that was not quite as urgent as the stuff you didn't get to. And then you've brought yourself all kinds of problems. So aim lower than you think you're going to get to. Then see what happens. I would suggest, you know, any given day cannot accommodate more than three, maybe five tasks that are not set appointments. So that might be a good way to kind of aim for, like if you've got four meetings, then set yourself three other tasks around those meetings. If you've got one meeting, maybe you could do more like five. 
But if you have a good sense of how the week is shaped like that, then you can allocate each goal to a particular time. And if it's like, wait, I don't think that's going to fit, that's a good sign that it's not going to fit. Yeah. So the time, sort of a modified time blocking approach is what you're suggesting, it sounds like. Now, this person specifically, and I I apologize because Laura was not able to hear the entire question right now. I summarized it, but they were asking about personal goals in particular, in addition to work goals, and how to make sure that they're not like too trivial. So they just feel like little tasks, but not too much where they really overwhelm themselves. And I don't have a great answer other than trial and error. I mean, if you pick a goal one week and it just seems like it's too much, then think about whether that might be a specific goal you want to divide into pieces. For example, you guys know I was working on doing an organizing program of my home and it quickly became evident that doing one step every day was not going to be doable for me. So I had to figure that out by trial and error and then decided, you know what, I'm going to do a couple of these actions per week. And so I learned by doing that that would be a meaningful amount for me that didn't feel completely trivial, but wasn't overwhelming. So I'm not sure we're entirely going to be able to answer this question for you, except to give you permission that it's okay to play with things and especially learn from the times that you do choose too many things, how you might be able to, to break those down to make them more manageable to fit the time frame of a week. Yeah, I would say that on weekend days, I tend to choose one or two things that I want to aim for on the weekend beyond kind of life maintenance, um, these little personal goals I want to tackle. More than that, it's just not going to happen if you have a busy life. I mean, that's just reality. And then maybe one to two much smaller things for during the week that you could tackle in the evenings. So that just as a general rule of thumb. And so apologies for having gone on about work-related time estimation, not having heard (laughs) the actual question through the magic of podcasting. It's going to get spliced in later. So now you know how the sausage is made around here. (laughs) That's Although, interestingly, answering questions that people didn't ask is kind of a time-honored media training technique that when you learn how to do, for instance, television or radio interviews, the goal is always, you know, people will ask a question, but you have kind of your set stuff that you also want to say. And generally, you can get to what you want to say if you pay attention to people who've done a lot of (laughs) television or radio interviews, they tend to answer stuff that didn't get asked. That is very interesting and definitely makes me think back to some of our guest interviews, especially our more polished guests, where it's like, wow, how did they work their book in there? Like, I asked about what they had for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, there you go. All right, question number two. Let's move on. Sarah, how do you organize your reading life? I think you should answer this because I basically do not. So go for it. Aw, well, not organizing is a method upon itself. So give yourself a little bit more credit. So I do tend to have a rough plan of what I'm going to read for a year. I know that sounds like a lot. I've been doing it for the last three years. And that doesn't mean that I'm... So first of all, let me tell you, my reading list making is is definitely a testament to my satisficing nature. I'm sure it's not like the absolute best curated list I could possibly create of the books that were made for me to read. But at the same time, if I'm reading like a slew of really good books, then to me, it doesn't matter if they're like the absolute best book I could have found to, you know, meet some arbitrary goals. So I I make these lists and I don't like totally belabor them. I just kind of like have a little Apple notes document. And if I hear of something, I'll put it on there. And then I'll, I'll, I'll dig deep into modern Mrs. Darcy's recommendations and some other podcast recommendations that I've been getting into. I've been into the 10 Things to Tell You podcast lately, and then a lot of times she has a lot of book recs that sound fascinating to me. So I've been adding some through that. 
And yeah, I'll have like a rough list for the year and then I, I change it. Like, I, I mean, I just added a book, for example, for 2021 to my library hold list because I had heard it on a podcast that wasn't originally on my list. So it is absolutely a flexible list because I do think if you give yourself like a very structured reading assignment, like if I was like, okay, the first two weeks of March, I will read this book. Like, of course, I wouldn't want to read that book at that time. But it's more like, oh, I have a a cornucopia of excellent titles to choose from for like each quarter. And then I'll like move things around as I see fit. But it means that I never have a lack of ideas in terms of what to put on my list and what to read. And I do tend to have a nonfiction and a fiction going at the same time because I read those at different times. Nonfiction is usually morning and fiction is usually like any other time, basically. And I also will say that I make a point of kind of playing with and keeping up to date my library hold list, at least monthly, usually more often because I'll get texts from the library that something has come in and that makes me, you know, add things or want to change my list or put put a hold on hold as you can do. You can get on the wait list and then decide, oh, I don't actually want that book soon. And you can like freeze the wait list and do all these kinds of stuff. So that helps as well. So I typically have books coming in and I have a low threshold for buying books too, especially if the library doesn't have them or I want to read them and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm person number hundred in line and just go ahead and click through and, and purchase. I'm a big fan of buying books. You should definitely support authors and buy books, but the library has to buy it too. So obviously, you know, that's a way to um, showing that there's a high demand. So requesting books from your library is another way to support authors. And if they know there's long hold list, they may invest in extra copies. Definitely put in a hold. You can put in a hold and buy the book if as a way to double support an author. That might be something you could do as well. Look and see what's interesting coming out. Look at reviews on on Modern Mrs. Darcy, the Wall Street Journal's book review section. You know, people I know have books coming out. At this point, I've been in not a terrible, not a great reading place for a while, but I am reading, as we've talked about, a chapter of War and Peace every morning. So I have a big fiction thing going over the course of the year. And then I'm most of the rest of my reading is whatever nonfiction book has caught my attention as of late. So I've recently read Jess Leahy, her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, which is fascinating. Some of our listeners might want to check that out. She's a a friend of KJ, who's been on the podcast a lot too. Uh, They have a podcast called Am Writing Together. But Jess talks about her, you know, recovery from alcoholism and this genetic history of hers that she's then trying to not pass along to her sons. I mean, obviously the genetics you can't help, but to how can you keep kids who have this history from becoming addicts themselves? Fascinating stuff. Anyway, so that's what I was reading the other day. So that does sound fascinating. Cool. Well, shall we take a short ad break? Yes. Yeah, of course. Take a short ad break and we will be back in just a minute. Well, we are back with an all-mailbag episode taking listener questions. This one came in through Instagram. How do you navigate gifts from grandparents? I don't want lots of stuff, but don't want to upset them. All right. Well, Sarah, you have your thoughts on this. I consider myself pretty lucky in this regard in that I think both sets of grandparents are cognizant of the fact that I don't want a whole slew of random stuff cluttering the house. Although we do. I mean, we totally do, by the way. Just don't get any ideas that we have this like uncluttered house, but just, I guess, not to add to it supremely. And so they they typically ask, and I don't know if I started, like, I don't know if I somehow 
who knows? Maybe it's just that they listen to the podcast and read the blog. I don't know that that's a strategy for everyone, but I think you can make it known that you are, you know, trying to reduce, you have tons of plastic toys, for example, or like you don't need any more Legos or whatever the thing is. And you can provide suggestions because a lot of times all grandparents want is to delight kids. And if you say, hey, my kids love to have a museum membership and you could take them like that would be a wonderful grandparent gift or even something like some kind of digital membership these days there's a lot of gaming things if you don't want stuff and you you want more technological stuff or we have gone to like uh, the doodle crate which is like the art version of the kiwi crate which it does sound like a lot of stuff because they're shipping stuff to your house but it's all kind of like consumable stuff like once you've completed the project then it's done and it's not taking up space in your house and i ask for those things like w- when i'm asked what the kids want i ask or i even volunteer like hey if you need ideas for x y or z's birthday they've they've been talking about this this or this so i think the more that you kind of in a positive way shape what you are interested in getting the more that should hopefully help prevent a deluge. And I think in the in the worst case scenario, you can always keep something for a short amount of time. <laughs> you don't have to necessarily keep something forever just because it's been gifted to you. You could re-gift it to somebody else after a month of use if it's taking up half of your playroom or something like that. Yeah, I would also say that, I mean, sometimes people get a little bit overly obsessed with having zero clutter and zero stuff. And I think that's an impossible goal when you have small kids. I mean, I I don't know what exactly this person's threshold is, but, you know, I had a a question on Instagram recently of somebody was like, oh, I'd love to do puzzles with my kids, but I don't want stuff in the house. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) they didn't want to have any puzzles or Legos in the house that they would do as a fun activity with their kids because it might be stuff. I I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, have your fun. Let the kids have their fun. You deal with the clutter later. If you want a house that's going to look like a magazine, like, you know, I'm sorry, it's just going to not happen until the the kids are older. And I think we need to learn to let go a little bit and be okay with that. Now, I'm not saying that if you live in an 800 square foot apartment and your grandparents get you this, you know, giant, like three set Barbie castle, like three Barbie castles in a row or something like that, that, that might be problematic. But, you know, I, I think at least leaving yourself open to a little bit of stuff is okay. And and as Sarah said, you can move it out after a while, after the kids have, have played with it, if you want to move on to something else. I think it's only the people who like either haven't had kids or just have one eight-month-old that have a fantasy of no stuff. Like, I think I had that fantasy, <laughs> but it's untenable. It's untenable. I would like to hear from someone. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe. It was... And it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. No, I mean, I would say, like, don't not do puzzles with your kids because the puzzle will be there. Like, don't not build a Lego set with your, you know, preteen because then the Legos will be there. This just seems like a, you know, strange way to organize your life that you're so into not having clutter that you wouldn't do things. I don't know. Anyway, Sarah, what tasks do you find become equal with your partner most easily? And as a sort of corollary to that that I'm adding, what are the things that you think are, are hardest to make equal? Or shouldn't be equal, I guess, because not everything has to be. I think the question was, and this is probably my fault, what is the most likely to become unequal? But I think we should answer in the positive way first, perhaps. I don't know. I always feel like when there's a very clear delineation of I'm doing this and you're doing that, that 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 helps. 
like recently our kids were going to do ice skating and I was just, and there was like an issue where like we had to teach, we had credit sort of. And I am like the kind of person who hates asking for stuff from businesses. And my husband's like, well, why? It was a birthday party we didn't do. And I'm like, great. You are totally in charge of ice skating now. I don't want anything to do with it. Like you call them, you work with them, whatever. And he, he did it. Like, it's fine. And of course he's always right. They were like, oh, we're happy to, you know, accommodate your credit or whatever. (laughs) But I just hate doing that. Anyway, sorry, that's a total digression. But I think that it helped that it wasn't like, oh, well you call and then I'll do this. It was like, you're in charge of that. And I think about like your kids and doctor's appointments. I remember your husband typically. Well, it's, yeah, that's sort of a mix. Um, I mean, with five, there's just a lot of them. We have split them at different points. Like, you know, having two kids go at one point and he'll take that and two at another and I'll take that. He tends to be more in charge of dental-related stuff, possibly because I would massively fall down on the job. Um, I have perhaps lower dental standards (laughs) than he does. So for instance, Ruth, he's in charge of orthodontia. Ruth has an expander now. I don't even know how to do it. He's been doing it every night. Now, of course, that works because we're in a period of time where he's still working from home. But, you know, I, I again, it's like when one person has totally different standards from another, I guess she was sort of obvious, but he's like, well, I want to take Sam in to, you know, get him evaluated because I think his lower teeth are crooked. And I'm like, who cares if your lower teeth are crooked? No one sees them anyway. I wouldn't have brought him in. And so he's like, if it's a situation like that, the party who cares more should probably do it. If you evaluate the various spheres of life, you may find out that there are certain things that one of you cares more about than the other. You know, and some of it obviously is going to split probably stereotypical gender lines. Like my husband tends to do more of the home repair stuff. He's like, well, we, I called the, you know, AC guys to get them to come into service it. And I'm like, oh, that, yes, that. (laughs) But, you know, then there's other stuff that, like, I'm pretty sure the summer camp spreadsheet would not happen if it were not me doing it. One thing that we have found works well is to also divide based on energy. So I am basically terrible at night. I mean, I when he's not here, I by default have to handle it. And oddly, I think the kids know I'm terrible and kind of humor me a little bit. So that helps. But when he is here, he tends to put the kids to bed. He deals with any shenanigans of kids getting out of bed. Like he just knows my tolerance for that is so bad that he just kind of does it. So that is one also, I say, I would say positive one that takes advantage of kind of natural differences in our energy level at that time of day. Yeah. I'm trying to split the um, sleep disruptions more evenly right now, having um, some challenges with it. Although, you know, what I'll do, I'll go sleep in the guest room. And so then Michael is in the room with Henry in the closet, right? Some nights. And, but I would love to sleep past six. And so last night I was in the guest room and I'm like, please give me till six. And so they appear in my room and he's like, no, it's morning. And he hands me the baby. And then I was like, let me just go look at the clock. <laughs> and it was, it was 545. So it was close, but it was not six. <laughs> I'm just like, come on. <laughs> like, couldn't you go 15 minutes, 15 more minutes? <laughs> I do feel like, and this, since the asker did ask about what quickly becomes unequal, unfortunately, I always felt like, and this is not his fault, but I felt like baby care was just typically where we would fall apart, partly because, you know, if you are nursing and that is the most easy 
kind of reliable way to soothe your baby, then only one person's able to do that. And then sometimes that just sort of extends over to like, you just end up being the baby wrangler. So there have been times when I have had to say like, and this is more applicable when our kids were younger, but I would just be like, I have been with the one-year-old the entire day and you've been doing fun stuff with the big kids and we need to like consciously trade. And then he does. And he's like, oh yeah, you're right. But I think that would be a natural one where we tend to kind of fall apart and that's not our intention, but it just kind of happens or used to happen. Exactly. But, you know, having discussions about it, always good. I mean, obviously this could be a topic of a whole episode, but, uh, you know, I think in general, making sure that you are aware also of what your partner is doing, because this does happen sometimes as, you know, our, our past guest, Tiffany Dufu, talked about in her book that and she and her husband made the list of the things that she were doing. You know, she made the list first and it's like, oh, I'm doing 50 things and you're doing two. And it's been like, well, he could list 50 things that she hadn't even thought of. <laughs> and so it was, you know, there are there are things that happen, like our, our bike tires get, you know, inflated, balls get inflated, you know, plants appear in the backyard. <laughs> like these are just things that happen. And I, I don't even think about it. And so, you know, I could then say like, oh, well, gosh, you know, why was I up at 545 instead of six? I mean, I it's because he was up since four. Like he was up with the baby since four, gave him to me at 545. Like apparently, you know, we gave him to that. But it was, you know, it, it's just you want to make sure that before you think things are terribly unequal, you take a good look at what is really happening and see what they think might be unequal too. And I'm glad you mentioned Drop the Ball. That is my favorite Division of Labor parent book. I think because... You can hear the love in their relationship as she talks about it, um, and it has a certain playfulness, but at the same time, it's like really powerful. So you should have your partner and yourself read that. Yeah. Apparently, in their case, he was the one getting up with their baby all the time, like she slept really deeply. <laughs> so there you go. Splits differently, different ways. All right. So our next question is <laughs> navigating the transition from one to two kids. So Sarah was joking about this. We we have a, a particular, they're sort of ongoing best of both worlds jokes. And we always laugh about fathers who make the joke whenever their kid, they're going from two to three of like, oh, well, we're going from man to man to zone defense. And it's like, well, that implies that you never had both two kids on your own ever. <laughs> because if you ever did, you were already true. doing zone <laughs> defense, right? Like, so like, thank you for sharing with us that you have never had your two children to yourself. But uh, okay, yes, you can make that joke. I love it. I love it. It, it is a best of both worlds trope or, or something to have a little bit of snark about that particular statement. So yes, I agree. I do feel like, so, you know, we, Laura wrote, oh, well, we could talk about two to three or three to four or four to five. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know the latter couple of those, but I found zero to one the hardest by far, because all of a sudden your life is not about you. It's about many other things. And one to two, the second hardest and two to three, the third hardest. So maybe it does <laughs> keep getting, maybe the answer is just have lots and lots, of, lots kids of kids and it gets easier. But actually to me, there's a really big difference between adding a child when you have like a three or four year old and then adding a child when you have say like an 18 month old or a 20 month old. I did would just say, give yourself a break if you are going to have a baby and toddler and know that, that that time period is short because your toddler is quickly going to age out to preschooler and things will get a little bit better. And then your baby will be a toddler. You won't have a screaming newborn. Like things are going to get better, but hire the help. Give yourself a break. 
don't expect that things are going to be perfect or easy. Like I personally found that to be a very challenging time. And it wasn't the two kids particularly. It was 22 month old and zero year old or like 26 month old and six month old or whatever, you know, we had. So again, the age spacing is going to play a role and know that that's going to be temporary because they're not going to stay both tiny babies and toddlers forever. Um, And that is the time to ask for help, whether that is from friends, family members, or people that you employ. Yeah. I mean, I would say I I don't even really have many, many memories of when Jasper was four, Sam had just turned two and Ruth was a baby. I mean, I clearly that time happened, but it was just a, you know, you get through it one way or the other. And to recognize that that is probably not going to be your most relaxing period of life. <laughs> when if, if you have, for instance, two under two or two under three, two under two and a half, whatever. I mean, these are, these are just really, really challenging times. Yeah. The, the baby is actually, you can put the baby down and like, especially if the baby isn't mobile, they're not going to go anywhere. Like they're not going to get into trouble. So you might be better off focusing on your two-year-old at that point. And, you know, viewing that that is the more immediate pressing issue and the the baby will then command more time later in life when that's happened and get very good at like nursing while walking around. (laughs) That was my other thing. Like you, you have this nice idea of people with first time children. They're like, I'm in my chair with my feet propped up and my pillow and my, you know, water on one side and the stopwatch. So I know how long I'm on each side. And then it's like, when you have a second kid you're just like, I am cooking dinner and watching a toddler while nursing. So just like run with that. Right? You get very good at it. I don't, I don't think I could ever do that. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> sounds awesome. But I but I did a lot of sit on the floor and play with toddler while nursing. While nursing. A, yes, exactly. Common. And you can always ignore the, the little tiny one for a brief period because they're not going to remember. Yeah, true, true. Whereas the bigger one is. All right, Sarah, so this next question is particularly for you. How do you save energy for after kid bedtime? This person says, I'm so often falling asleep and get nothing done. (laughs) Is it for me? Because I don't have any good answer to this. I think it's for you. You're you're more likely to actually. (laughs) Well, yes. Okay, I will. I will just say that I don't have a great answer for this because I don't have a lot of energy after kid bedtime. I set my sights really low in terms of how much I am going to do or experience. If I get 30 to 60 minutes to either read or hang out with my husband, then that is a win. I do get more on week weekends because I tend to sleep in and then I'm less tired. But, you know, the flip side of getting up early is you can't then stay up till midnight. I mean, maybe some people can, but I definitely cannot. So I'm usually in bed by 9.30 to 10. And my kids go to bed at like 8.30 to 9. So you do the math. There's not a lot of window in there. And you can imagine that's not a super high energy window either. So I think it's okay if that's not a time you get a lot done. I think being realistic and knowing that, you know what, that's my 30 minutes of wind down time. If that's all you really have, then then maybe that's okay. Maybe that's your quote unquote season right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Sarah, Sarah has chosen to put her personal time in the early morning, which is an option. Like if you don't have any energy at the end of the day, but you do in the morning, then consciously use the morning as me time. Like you don't have to only do me time at night after your kids go to bed. I mean, it's obviously a convenient time for it for many people, but you may in fact have the energy to do sort of more effortful things in the morning, like Sarah doing her workout in the morning, doing her blog writing, doing some reading in the morning, doing your meditation in the morning. We could list through Sarah's extensive morning routine. 
you know, that's all stuff that would, for many people, be a lot harder to do at night. Like what we do with our free time at night tends to be more watching TV because, you know, that's, nobody has that much energy at night, even if they tend to think they do. I think it does help, though, to be clear about how much time is there. So for instance, if you aren't going to go to bed until, let's say, 1030, for whatever reason, that is the time you have set as your normal weeknight bedtime, and you put your kids to bed at, I don't know, eight, then you do, in fact, have two and a half hours. And it helps to know what that amount of time is, and then to have some sort of plan for it. And I'm not saying like you need to, you know, set every minute or schedule like you would during the day, like every 15 minutes, I've got appointments for these sorts of things and send your spouse like an Outlook invite for watching a show. But knowing that you might have two hours before you need to get ready for bed can encourage you to think a little bit more mindfully of like, well, what could I do in two hours? And the good news is that that's like enough to do a lot. I mean, you could watch a movie on a weeknight. Like that might feel, if you were just thinking about it, that would feel sort of irresponsible, right? (laughs) But, you know, if you know you have two hours, like you can in fact do that. Or you could, you know, set a phone call with a friend. Like we're going to talk on Thursday night after the kids go to bed. And then you know that's coming up and you'd look forward to it. Like if you have things you're looking forward to, it can be a little bit easier to sort of manage your energy and preserve a little bit of your energy for that, knowing that good stuff is coming up. Now, if you don't have anything you're looking forward to do, well, then it's a a little bit harder to manage your energy and to steward it towards that evening to do. But if you know you don't have any energy, you may as well just go to bed and then wake up earlier and and do whatever it was you were going to do in the morning. Yeah. And I know we've had some guests on that are all about their second shift um, and working late at night. And if that works for some people, that's wonderful. But I I also don't think it's a requirement to be, at least in my experience, a a reasonably successful employed female with a family (laughs) that enjoys both life and family time. I don't feel like I would get much done that was of any substance if I did try to force myself to work at night. And I have friends who do. And then I have friends who absolutely never do. And so I think sometimes the myth that that's kind of a requirement can be a little dangerous. If you are going to do the split shift, like if you know that there are certain tasks you have left for the evening because you've made a conscious choice to leave work earlier, which remember, that is the reason you do a split shift is that you have left work earlier than you otherwise would have and are moving that time to the evening have a list of what you intend to do. Again, this is going to help with managing your energy too. It's not like, I'm going to get through a thousand email backlog between eight and 10. Like, no, you are not. But if you have, okay, I need to send responses to these three things, send out the minutes for my meeting that is tomorrow at 9 a.m. and then review the notes for the meeting that then happens at 10. Like those things you can get through in that shift. And so if you have that list of what needs to happen, then you will be able to manage your energy to know to get through that and know that when you're done, you're done and hopefully be done enough earlier that you can still watch a show or do something else fun for for 30 minutes in there. All right, Sarah, do you ever wish you had a few years to experience stay-at-home mom life? I thought this was kind of an interesting question. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I thought it was a fun question. It did make me stop and think for a minute. And I was like, well, I guess I could have done that. Like, you know, we would have survived quite fine if I had chosen to do that. And I probably could even have reentered the workforce and done fine as well from a career perspective. That is one nice thing about being a 
a physician, you can keep your board certification. And if you primarily want to do a clinical job, you can take a little bit of time off and go back. So this actually wasn't as much as theoretical as it sounded. I was like, well, it could have been. I think that it sounds nice. Like I'm picturing myself taking walks with my kids and like, but then if I actually place myself into that reality, it would mean not having like somebody to help with childcare and housework and stuff like that. So I would have been doing a lot of that. And I, I know like the societal answers I'm supposed, I'm like supposed to have wanted that or like be really sad that I didn't experience that. But I guess the only thing I might have done, might have done if I could have like magically known that everything would have been fine is not to ever have had to pump <laughs> to just stay with my babies for 12 months. But that's like a maternity and leave. That's, never, like a, that's like a Norwegian maternity yeah. leave. That's not being a stay-at-home mom. Yes, I would have taken, if I could have, I would have taken a Norwegian maternity leave. Let me let me just make that clear. If that had been an option, I think I would have found that to be a nice balance. But I'm pretty sure that by six months in, I'd have 15 other projects I wanted to do because I, I don't. I just don't know if I would have been happy not doing it. And by 12 months, I would have been I think I would have been very, very, very ready to get back to my own kind of autonomous work, um, not at home. So, so I guess my answer is yes and no, but I, I mean, I could like, I sort of answer my own question. Like in theory, I could have done that and I didn't. So I guess I didn't want to now, do we all wish we could live our lives like 10 times and experience it all types of different ways and see what was fun? Like, sure. But we don't get to sadly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice idea though. Be a good sci-fi book. Sarah and I have both kind of chosen not to do that. So in the sense of like, did we ever wish we could experience it? Well, no, because we chose not to, right? Um, and so that's kind of, I mean, the nature of that question, right? And it's also like, I'm not sure what would be so incredibly different from the experience I've had. I mean, because I've been with my children on enough days that I'm quite aware of what's involved in caring for them. You know, I have had many a Tuesday when I have not been working for some reason or another and have done stuff with the kids. Like I've had weekends and stuff. I, I'm there quite a bit. I'm at home. <laughs> so it's like, you know, not particularly some world that I feel like I've missed a huge amount on. In my feeling, I've gotten to do a lot of that really cool stuff that might have been, you know, done as a stay-at-home mom, only I've also gotten to have a really cool career too. So I guess my answer is no. I don't wonder what it would be like because that's not what we've chosen to to do. Well, this has been best of both worlds, Sarah, unless you have something else you want to add to that. <laughs> no, I just think that was such a fun question. So thank you for asking it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for asking that. And, and to our listeners, like you have also permission not to have the feeling that, you know, you've missed it. I know there's this sort of idea that you're supposed to be like guilty or wistful or whatever. And if you're not, you're not. Like, I mean, I'm sure... Many people have experienced a great amount of time with their kids. That's the whole thing we say I mean, with best of both worlds is like, even if you are working a full-time job, there is a lot of other time that you experience with your family as well. So it's, it's not quite the trade-off that people often think it is. All right. Well, speaking of that, this has been best of both worlds. We've been doing our mailbag episode and we will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.